This morning I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians and chapter 1. I just want to read a verse that's going to introduce our theme today. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16. I'm going to be preaching to you on the subject of the providence of God, and in particular the extent of God's providence. We're going through very uncertain times as a congregation and as uh, people, as a nation. And there's no doctrine that is such an anchor for God's people as the doctrine of God's providence. And one of the verses, the many verses in the scriptures that speak of his control over all things is found in a statement about the Lord Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. In verse 16 we read, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Before we consider these words and others like them in the scriptures, let's now once again seek the help of God. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that you have been pleased to enable us to worship you together in this way. We thank you that we do not live in a time in which we do not have these technological advantages. And we pray that even now you would be pleased to draw near to us by your Spirit. We pray that you would be pleased to speak to us by your Spirit according to your purposes, your intentions through your Holy Word. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Throughout history, various attempts have been made to define the relationship that God has to his world. And I want to go through, by way of introduction, several of the attempts that have been made throughout history to define this relationship. One of the theories that has been quite popular in recent years is the theory we call open theism. Theologians recognize that if God infallibly knows everything that's going to come to pass, then everything that God knows will indeed come to pass. And if everything God foreknows infallibly will come to pass, they realize that this implies that all has been foreordained by God. And if this is so, they argue, then whether this or that happens is not contingent upon human choices. So in order to protect human freedom, they argue that God does not actually know everything that is going to come to pass. And this view has been called open theism, because according to this view, to God, the future is just as open as it is to us, just as unknown as it is to us. And yet they argue, while this admittedly undermines the traditional doctrine of God's omniscience, it makes God more relatable to his creatures. And they argue that God deliberately limits himself and his knowledge of the future, and he does this in order that he might enter the risks that you and I take, just as we take risks not knowing what's going to happen, God takes risks. And so this is why this is called open theism. You see, if God doesn't know which way you and I are going to choose, then his providential government of the world involves risk on his part. And according to open theism, providence, therefore, is a very risky affair for God. Does the providence of God extend to everything that he's created, including the choices of men and women? Well, according to open theism, God deliberately limits his providence 
in order that our choices will be uncertain, that they will be completely contingent upon our own free will. And therefore, God's knowledge is limited. His plan for man, therefore, it involves risk. Now, you and I, we make choices that involve a lot of risk. During the last few weeks, we've been experiencing many choices that we make that are very risky. You have to ask questions like this. Do I go to work and risk getting the coronavirus and then bring it back into my house unknowingly and risk, therefore, those that are in my house? Or do I stay home and then risk being laid off and risk losing my house and risk losing my career? Shall I risk going to the grocery store and getting the virus and then maybe having less money to pay or more money to pay? Or shall I uh, take the risk of paying for home delivery and then have a risk of running out of money, which is scarce these days? And so these risks that we take, they're all traced back to the fact that we don't know what's going to happen. And open theism asserts that in order to protect the complete contingency of man's free will, God limits his own foreknowledge and he enters into the kind of risks that you and I take throughout our lives. Now, one advocate of this theory, he makes this admission. God must take real risks if he makes free creatures, thousands, millions, or trillions of risks if each creature makes thousands of morally significant free choices. No matter how shrewdly God acted in running so many risks, is winning on every risk would not be antecedently possible. I just want to ask before we move on, what kind of comfort does that doctrine give to people going through great upheaval? What kind of comfort does it give to those that are in the national upheavals that we are experiencing now. How can I rest in God's providence if, after all, it involves just as much risk for him as it does for me? And just as I can't make sure that my plans will work out, God can't make sure that his plans are going to work out either. And so according to this theory, in the life of God, there are necessarily frustrations of his plans. And at best, if one plan doesn't work out, he has to try another. And God might have many beliefs about the future, and he might be more highly informed than you and I are, and he's very expert anticipating about what's going to happen. But after all, his, his knowledge, according to this theory, is just like ours. It's very uncertain. What comfort is there in that? A second theory of God's relationship with the world is that of dualism. In the Zendavesta, the sacred book of the ancient Persian religions, Zoroastrianism. In this book, two gods, Ormazd and Araman, shared in the creation of the world. The good god, Ormazd, he made everything that is good, and the evil god, Araman, made everything evil. Ormazd, he created man to help him in the good, and it's hoped that in the end, Ormazd and man, they will prevail, that good will prevail. But until the end, there's this constant battle between these two opposing forces. And there is this dualism. It's as if it's forever in tension between the good and the evil. This is the theory of dualism. And even in our own country, dualism is still very popular. In simplified form, it's expressed in that famous movie series, The Star Wars. Luke Skywalker, he's initiated into the League of Jedi Knights. 
And he masters the force, as it's called. And this force animates the cosmos. And he does this by tapping into his own intuitions. And he wages war against the evil. And again, I ask in times of upheaval, what kind of comfort can this dualism give to people? Another explanation, the third explanation of the relationship between God and the world is pantheism. Now, obviously, no Christian could ever believe in pantheism. Pantheism is the view that the universe is God. And such a view, it never can be acceptable to a to Christian because it denies the distinction between God Almighty and the universe that God made. And this view, it is contrary to the very most basic teaching of Scripture about God, that there is one God, and this one God is distinct from all of his creation. And furthermore, if pantheism is true, and the universe is God, then when individuals perform actions, God is performing those actions. And this would involve God in the most atrocious crimes that have ever been committed. And so in the most direct way, it makes God the author of sin. Even the most awful crimes like the Holocaust. But to the contrary, we say that even though Hitler was created and sustained by God, and God was sovereignly intervening in that whole affair, his holy, unholy career, even though it was under God's superintendence, when he sinned, God was not sinning. God wasn't, he wasn't the one that he, he didn't sin. But if pantheism is true, God is the author of these atrocious crimes. And in the great struggle between good and evil, what kind of comfort again can this give? Another explanation of the relationship between God and the world is deism. And that free thinking group of philosophers that flourished in England and then later on in America in the 18th century, deism was a very popular philosophy. Deists, they argue against the special revelation of God and against miracles. They asserted that God created the universe with certain physical laws and that by its inherent power, the universe that God made always behaves consistently in a regular law-like way. Perhaps the best illustration I can think about of, of deism is a watch. And according to the old way of watches, you had to wind it up every day and it would be a good thing to do at the same time every day so you make sure it gets done. But according to this picture, this is a watch that he can wind up and can keep on going on forever. So he's wound up this watch, and then he just leaves it to go. He leaves this creation to go, and it all takes care of itself. Well, deism is better than pantheism because it doesn't assert, because it asserts the distinctiveness of God from his creation. But deism completely denies that God intervenes in his creation in a providential way. He's wound up the clock. Now it's all on his own. The earth goes its own way. God is the originator, you see. He is the imparter of, of, of movement to his universe. He has done this, and because he's done it so wisely, there's no need for him to intervene at any point. There's no need to adapt, you see, his perfect original plan, because He's arranged it all in the laws of nature, and he doesn't need to intervene. Well, again, I ask, what kind of hope 
does deism offer to people going through deep waters? According to this theory, there is no such thing as God's providential deliverance. There is no such thing as a miracle, because this would require God's sovereign intervention. To the deist, there is the abstract idea, yes, that God can work a miracle, he has that ability, that God could providentially intervene. It's an abstract idea, but there's no need, you see, for God to do this, because this would imply foresight on his part. And such teaching, it runs counter to the teaching of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And in times of trouble, it leaves us cold. It offers us no hope. It leaves us without the intervention and care of a loving Heavenly Father, a Father that's committed to caring for His creatures. But let me mention one more theory of the relationship of, of, between God and the universe. And I don't know what the best label is for this theory, but I just want to call it scientism. And this is the assumption of vast numbers of professors and teachers in our colleges and in our universities. They suppose that if scientists were to solve the riddle about whether there is uh, concerning the physical origins of the universe, whether it lay in the Big Bang, or whether the universe it exists in an eternal steady state, as if matter is eternal and it's always been basically the same, if they could solve this theory, you see, we'd be able to come nearer to explaining the relationship between God and the physical universe. That is, if there is such a thing as God. But if God's relationship with the universe can be understood scientifically, then God would be part of that universe. As Paul Helm observes, investigating God and the universe would be like investigating the relationship of one planet to another or one galaxy to another, or the relationship of anything physical to anything else that is physical. But God is not physical. God is a spirit. God is not part of his created universe. He can't be put under our microscope. He can't be viewed, you see, through our telescopes. He can't be inspected by us and figured out by us. As a spiritual being, he can't be examined by a scientist. As the infinite creator of the universe, he's not part of that universe. God transcends the universe. What audacity the, these scientists have to think that they can investigate God. And so I say the only satisfactory explanation of the relationship between God and the universe is found in what we call biblical theism. God is not to be identified with his creation. And one of the most profound differences between God and his creation is that creation continuously depends upon God for its existence. And conversely, God does not depend upon the universe for his existence. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need the sun. He doesn't need the universe. He's independent. He's self-sufficient. And this difference between the creator and creation this is not true of any other relationship. Now, as I was preparing the sermon, I was typing my sermon on a word processor. And that word processor received the signals that I sent to us with the various letters on my keyboard that I typed. And then, in response to that, electronically, letters appeared upon my monitor. 
I could go back and correct the mistakes. But the vast array of molecules that hold together that monitor and that keyboard and that computer, the, the molecules of all of that, these things are all being upheld by God. They depend upon the triune God. My word processor, it was made of material that God created. And beyond this, those very molecules, they're continuously being upheld by God. Isn't this what we read at the beginning of the sermon? All things were created through him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things consist. Literally, all things hold together. Now, this includes not just my word processor. It includes the preacher that typed those words that appeared on the monitor. And without God's upholding power, neither the man that typed those words nor the device that processed those words could continue to exist for a moment. Now, this brings me to a brief definition of God's providence. And we're going to try to keep this simple. We're not going to go into all the details that are found in the Confession of Faith. But I want to quote from the Shorter Catechism, the answer that's given to question number 12 in the Baptist Catechism. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Now, what I want to do here is highlight two words in this concise definition. The word preserving and the word governing. God's providence includes preserving the preservation of all things. Now, as we just saw in Colossians chapter 1, in Christ all things consist. All things hold together. And without his preserving power, they would cease to exist. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 tells us that he upholds all things by the word of his power. And the most fundamental aspect of this care for his creatures is the way he preserves his creation and all that it contains. And to preserve, it's to keep something in existence. Creation doesn't have the power to keep itself in existence. If God did not uphold and, 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 and hold together the electrons and the neutrons of each atom together, they would fly off in every direction and they would cease to exist. Now, with respect to the living creatures that he has made, and not just inanimate objects that are made of atoms of various sorts, with respect to living creatures, their existence is sustained by God's provision. Now, the word providence that we often use, it's a form of the word provide. And the preservation of every living creature, it involves, therefore, the provision of their every need. And so we read in Psalm 145, verses 15 and 16, The eyes of all look expectantly to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Now this dependence of the creature on God's provision is absolutely universal. It's perpetual. Jesus teaches us that even the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet our Heavenly Father feeds them, he says. 
So the first aspect of what providence is, it involves preserving his creation. And preserving includes providing for it. But the second aspect, according to the Catechism, is that of governing. Now, part of good governing involves restraining the governed. And the opposite of good governing is the kind of unnecessary provocations that leads people to revolt. Now, by the law of gravitation, God, for instance, he keeps the material world in his place. And by his infinite power, he restrains the consciences of men. And by the restraints of the Holy Spirit, God restrains people from breaking out all the time in constant rebellion and anarchy and chaos. Now, there's a song that I learned as I was growing up. If you were all sitting here in the room, I'd ask if anybody could raise their hand. Do you remember the Hornet song? Did you ever hear the Hornet song? Well, there's a lot of truth in that uh, song that we learned as, as young people. And I think it illustrates what I'm trying to say here. In the chorus, it includes these two lines. He does not compel us to go against our will, but he just makes us willing to go. And the whole song is based upon Exodus 23, 28. I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite and the Canaanite and the Hittite from before you. And so one of the stanzas that flushes out the teaching of that particular verse is this, when the Canaanites hardened their hearts against God and grieved him because of their sin, God sent along hornets to bring them to time and to help his own people to win. The hornets persuaded them that it was best to go quickly and not go slow. God did not compel them to go against their will, but he just made them willing to go. Now the picture that's conveyed in that song and the Bible verse that uh, is based upon, it conveys, you see, the opposite of, of fatalism. In God's providence, the controller is not some blind force. It's not a control exercised apart from what men and women want to do. God exercises control, but it's not apart from their wills or their desires, compelling them as it were dragging them against their own will. Instead, he selects from the vast array of the influences at his disposal, including his own spiritual influence, sometimes he might use hornets, and he leads his creatures to act in accordance with this perfect plan of his. Now this brings me to the main part of our sermon, the extent of God's providence. The Catechism tells us that God's providence includes preserving and governing, those are the two words we just opened up, but then what does God preserve? What does God govern? It goes on to say it involves preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Every creature and every action of every creature is governed by God's wise and holy providence. There's no such thing as luck or chance in God's world. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Now, this isn't something dreamed up by some kind of austere theologians that just kind of like really hard ideas uh, about some kind of a God that pushes buttons in heaven and he just kind of manages everybody, everything. This is a biblical concept. For we read in Ephesians 1.11, we are predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
Now, all things pretty much includes everything. All things are included in this eternal plan. And he works all things in accordance with that eternal plan. That verse couldn't be any plainer. Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. God has established his throne. His rule is not derived from other people. It isn't that everybody voted for God and therefore God got put in office. It doesn't depend upon people wanting to keep voting for him. God doesn't need anybody. He doesn't need voters to prop him up. His throne is in the heavens. It is a stately, heavenly rule. Nothing is higher. And what is its extent? What does that verse say? Psalm 103, 19. His kingdom rules over all. Now, earthly monarchs, they have their little patches of earth. They call them empires. They're just little specks in this vast universe. But everything on earth and everything throughout this vast universe is governed by God. This morning, what I want to do is point out three parts of this universal rule. And I'm doing this as a means of encouragement and comfort and strength to the people of God. This universal rule, it includes the entire material universe. It includes the universe of spiritual beings and the universe of material spiritual beings. In other words, human beings made both material and spiritual. The first thing that this includes is the entire material universe. Psalm 103, verse 22, speaks of all his works in all places of his dominion. In book of Acts, chapter 17, and verse 28, we read, In him we live and move and have our being. We all live in God's care. There's no creature that's not sustained and governed by God. And if God were, were to withdraw his powerful sustaining hand, the very existence of everything would disintegrate. God's providence, therefore, it extends to all of his creation. It includes the vast galaxies of the stars along with the planets that encircle those stars. It includes the beasts and the birds and the fishes, heat and cold, the huge globes and the minute atoms. It's over heaven above and earth abroad and hell beneath. Now the Bible uses two different methods of teaching us how universal this providence is. It gives us universal biblical statements, and it gives us particular biblical statements. Just briefly, I want to just quote a few universal biblical statements first. He is a great king over all the earth. Psalm 47, 2. His kingdom rules over all, we read in Psalm 103 and verse 19. In him all things consist, Colossians 1, 17. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Hebrews 1 and verse 3. Well, these are just a few of the many biblical statements that are universal in scope, that you, you can't make all mean something less than all. It's all. 
But now notice with me that God also teaches us how universal his providence is by particular biblical statements. The Bible descends to particulars, and it declares that over each being and event, God exercises his sovereign control. He who planted the ear, shall he not hear? He who formed the eye, shall he not see? He who instructs the nations, shall he not correct? Psalm 94. He never slumbers nor sleeps nor goes on a journey. He's always awake. His ear is ever open to the cry of his people. He's never sick. He's never weary. He never faints. His eyes are in every place beholding the evil and the good. He numbers the very hairs of our heads. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from his notice. We read in Job chapter 28, beginning with verse 24. He looks to the ends of the earth and sees under the whole heavens to establish a weight for the wind and apportion the waters by measure. And when he has made law for the rain and a path for the thunderbolt, then he saw the wisdom and he declared it. He prepared it. Indeed, he searched it out. This God causes the grass to grow for the cattle and the herb for the service of man, Psalm 104. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens that cry, Psalm 147. He calls the stars by their names. He marshals out, as it were, his army and this host of heaven. He spreads the clouds in the heavens. He dispenses the rain. He clothes the grass. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the hoarfrost like ashes. Who can stand before his cold? He hunts the prey for the lion. He sends out the wild donkey free. He decks the peacock with its glorious feathers. He plumes every brilliantly colored bird in the jungle. He gives the war horse its strength, and he clothes its neck with thunder, we read in Job. He shuts up the sea with its doors so that it won't break forth. He enters into the very springs of the sea. He knows the boundaries of the light, and he penetrates the dark depths of the oceans. Sun and moon and stars, fiery meters, heavens above and the earth beneath, fire, hail, snow, vapors, stormy winds, mountains, hills, trees, beasts, cattle, creeping things, birds, kings, counselors, senators, all people, young men and maiden, old men and children, lightning and earthquake, all, all obey his mighty voice and do his will. Nothing is beyond his grasp. Now, one of my favorite things to do, to watch while I'm sorting out papers or sorting out receipts, are nature shows. And one of the creatures that most fascinated me recently is the Amur falcon. It's spelled A-M-U-R. Every year, the Amur falcon, they fly all the way from northeastern China and Siberia to Nagaland. And Nagaland is located in the northeastern part of India, near the border of Myanmar. And when they gather together in that place, it's the largest gathering of birds of prey on the planet. Hundreds of thousands at a time, wave after wave, come into that particular place. And the root they, they roost in the, the, especially now in the, along the Duyan Reservoir. And they come wave after wave, probably numbering to the millions. 
And their ultimate destination, even though they've already flown thousands of miles, their ultimate destination is another 8,000 miles. It's, it's South Africa. And 2,400 miles of that trip is over the ocean. All the while, these are not birds that can swim. They can't stop for rest. And it's a trip that just the ocean part takes four or five days. How is it that they can make that trip? Well, precisely at that very moment, that very time, when they come to the Doyang Reservoir, just after the monsoons are over, there's a great stirring in the ground. As countless subterranean termites, they tunnel to the surface. And they begin to prepare colonies for the mating season. And worker termites, they chew tr tunnels, and they out of them they, they emerge trillions of winged, inch-long, fertile adults known as alates. Fat, rich, perfect food for the insectivorous falcon to give them fuel for that long trip. These insects come out just at that time, and just at that time when these falcons arrive. And so you see the pictures of it. It's as if the, the heavens are black with these insects, and the falcons just snatching them up everywhere in the air. And how is it then that these birds fly thousands of miles and arrive just at the right moment when they can fuel up for this long journey? I'd like to, to know from evolutionary biologists how they knew exactly where to go and exactly when to get there. And how is it that these termites know just, just when it is that they're supposed to come out? There's only one answer. God taught them to do this. It is all embracing creation and providence. He instilled in them the instinct to fly these thousands of miles to that one spot where they could fuel up for the next 8,000 miles. Dear people of God, the same God that taught these remarkable birds to do what they do, he's in charge of the novel coronavirus. Usually in scripture, plagues are an expression of divine judgment or chastening. In Exodus 19 and verse 14, God says to Pharaoh at this time, I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. You also remember that when the Israelites complained about the manna that God was giving them, he sent them quail. But we read in Numbers 133, I think it's actually 1133, while the meat was still between their teeth before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. Thousands died. And in response to the rebellion of Korah and Dathan and Abiram, the earth swallowed up these ringleaders as 250 others were consumed by fire. And when God's people then began to complain, Lord, you just, you just killed these people. What did the Lord do? He say, well, well, I, I, I get it. I was being a little bit hard there. No. He sent a plague. And 14,700 people died. You'll also remember the 70,000 that were killed by a plague in David's day. Now we could cite many other passages about plagues in scripture. And they keep on coming back to the same kind of theme of judgment or chastening by God. The pestilence is God's rod. And often the righteous suffer along with the unrighteous when these things come upon us. 
The novel coronavirus, it's been called by our president and others an invisible enemy. But we may be sure, dear people, that every microbe drifting in droplets in the air does not strike its victim at, at random. And we also know that the Lord is often pleased to distinguish between his people and the world. There's some of the plagues, you remember, that struck the Egyptians, but not the Israelites in Goshen. And in Psalm 91, verse 3, we are promised that God will deliver his people from the perilous pestilence. And in verse 6 of that chapter, we're exhorted not to be afraid of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor the destruction that lays waste at noonday. And even though this doesn't mean that we're to be foolhardy, we are to be wise, we are to use means for our preservation. Even though it doesn't mean we're to be foolhardy, we may rest in the sovereign purposes and care of our Heavenly Father. The entire material universe, dear people, it's included in God's providence, including COVID-19. But now I want to move in the second place to emphasize that the entire universe of spiritual beings is also under his control of providence. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I just want to mention a few passages. First of all, from Psalm 103, verses 20 and 21. And I'm just quoting these passages instead of taking the time to turn to them all. But at the end of that wonderful psalm, we read, Bless the Lord, you his angels, who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you ministers of his, who do all of his pleasure. They're called his hosts. 130 times in the Bible, God is called the Lord of hosts. And when Jacob met the angels along the way, he called them the host of God. Jesus said, you remember that if he wanted to do so, he could call for 12 legions of angels. They are ministers of flaming fire, he says, ministering spirits that are sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation, Hebrews 1 tells us. And so God, in his providence, this extends to every spiritual being, but not only angels, but also evil spirits. He sends them sometimes in judgment. We read of Saul that the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. You remember how Satan had to ask for the Lord's permission to, to deal with Job and to afflict Job. And so the entire universe of spiritual beings as well as material creation, these two are under God's sovereign control and providence. But our third point here is the main point. The entire universe of material slash spiritual beings, these are also included. And the one part of God's creation that's both material and spiritual is mankind. Now the scriptures are plain that man is chief among the visible parts of God's creation. If God is carefully involved in every aspect of the whole material universe, and if the entire universe of spiritual beings is here to carry out God's glorious purposes, how much more man? We read in Job 7, verses 17 and 18, What is man that you should exalt him, and that you should set your heart upon him, 
And you should visit him every morning and test him every moment. In a sense, Job is saying, why are you paying so much attention to me? I'd kind of like you to ignore me because I'm just getting afflicted a lot here. But the broader point that comes out of that is that there's a sense in which God visits mankind in the morning. He tests him. He pays special attention to him. Now consider how this is so in the cases of three classes of human beings. In the first place, this includes rulers. We read in Proverbs 21 and verse 1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. We read in Isaiah chapter 45, if you want to, you can turn there with me. We read of the way in which God worked in the heart of a heathen king that had no idea that he was doing God's will. The very beginning of that chapter we read, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. And he speaks about how we will go before him and make his, his mission successful. And he says in verse 3, Isaiah 45, 3, I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who called you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. Now this is very comforting, that God could take a heathen king, has no love for God's people, and he could use that heathen king to make decrees and enact measures that will be a blessing and benefit to God's people. And you and I, we live in days where, where there's great political upheaval. This coronavirus, you'd think it'd bring us all together. But we see the hatred that's still out there. We see how, how, how and, and hatred is just exploding on the right hand and on the left hand. And when hatred rules people's hearts, it always makes them, though they will assume the very worst of that person that they hate, it makes it impossible to be objective about the person you hate. And for three years, it's been nonstop hatred and lies. I don't know about you, but that gets discouraging to me sometimes to see it. I just got to turn it off. I struggle sometimes with discouragement. Got to open up. Now, you'd think that this natural crisis, this national crisis, it, it get us to put our swords in our sheets, get along, but it hasn't. And this is what calms my heart. There's a God in heaven that rules in the midst of all of this. Ultimately, he's going to get his way. He's not up in heaven wringing his hands and worried about people making their decisions, worried about how things have just kind of gotten out of control. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods, we read in Psalm 82.1. And he will bring the great ones of the earth to account. Our God shall prevail. His kingdom endures forever. And so this rule over mankind, it includes the rulers. But secondly, it extends also to those who oppose God. He doesn't merely rule in the hearts of people that naturally are more pliable. But even among those that are stubborn and hateful and obstinate, people plotting against him and his kingdom, 
There is no wisdom nor understanding nor counsel against the Lord. You read in Proverbs 21.30. Now sometimes God restrains the wicked by preventing them from achieving their evil purposes. On one occasion, you remember how bloodthirsty Saul virtually had David in his clutches. He surrounded him. David was trapped. But just at that moment, news came of the Philistine invasion. And Saul had to call off his hunt for David. You'll also remember the marvelous way, and I won't go into the detail, the marvelous way in which God frustrated Haman's terrible plot to destroy the Jews. And elsewhere in the Bible, we read of God's restraining not only of individuals, but even of whole nations. You remember how three times a year the Israelites were supposed to go up to the to, the, to Jerusalem for a feast. Earlier on to the tabernacle. And in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 24, God anticipates an objection. People are going to be worried. Well, we're going to leave home. What's going to happen? Are they going to come and burn my house down? Are they going to steal everything that I have? Are they going to abuse my wife or abuse my children that are left behind? So what does God say? Neither shall any man desire your land when you go up to appear before the Lord in your God thrice in the year. At that time, God is going to stop all the instincts to steal that people have. Sometimes he restrains the evil purposes of men. Sometimes he softens their hearts. You remember how Pharaoh's daughter was made tender when she saw Moses and that little bulrush, that little basket made of bulrushes. You remember how the edict had gone out to destroy all the Hebrew boys. And she was Pharaoh's daughter. She better obey her papa, the Pharaoh. But she saw Moses crying in the basket. Her heart went out to Moses. And Moses was spared. God had softened her heart. Sometimes God hardens the hearts of the wicked. He hardened the heart of Pharaoh and Sihon and the Canaanites. We read of that again and again in many different passages. Sometimes in God's providence, men are made to, to make decisions that are, that are contrary to their natural inclinations. And because God controls the free acts of wicked men, just think with me about Pilate. Pilate always vacillating, going back and forth between two things. One moment he's pronouncing Jesus as being totally innocent, and the next moment he's being prevailed upon to, to pronounce the death sentence of this innocent man. Vacillates, you see. But he becomes firm as a rock in refusing to alter the inscription that he's written out. What I have written, he says, Jesus loved Nazareth, king of the Jews. What I have written, I have written. God made it so. He made it so as a testimony to who it was that Jesus was as he was hanging there upon the cross. And so God's providence extends not only to rulers in general, but to even those that oppose his will. But now I want to mention in here, this is especially what's upon my heart this morning. The providence of God is especially centered on the saints. Maybe you could turn with me to Psalm 103. I want to read some verses from Psalm 103. Psalm 103, in verse 13, we read, As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. 
And then in verse 17, we read, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do them. His special concern, you see, as a father is on his children, just like a father. He is concerned about children more than other people that are out there. That's our attitude of the Lord toward his people. There is covenant people. In Psalm 33, 18, we read, The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy. His eye is especially focused upon them. In Isaiah 27, 3, the Lord calls his people his vineyard. And then he says about his vineyard, his people, in other words, I, the Lord, keep it. This isn't just the rugged land that's out there. This is my specially tilled vineyard. I, the Lord, keep it. I water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I keep it night and day. Now, what does that say about the wicked that are going to try to destroy God's people? God keeps his people night and day. So if you're a wicked person and you want to destroy God's people, you've got to pick a different time than night or day. Now, what's that going to be? Never. You can't destroy them. He watches over them night and day. There's no time in which God's enemies will succeed and overpower the vineyard owner. For he watches over them night and day. In the New Testament, the undergirding truth in this connection is that we have been purchased by the blood of Christ. In Christ, every gift is sanctified for our good. You remember how the Corinthians were arguing about what, who was the better preacher, Paul or Apollos or Peter. Who, well, I am of Paul, some said, and so forth. And Paul has to say to them at the end of 1 Corinthians 3, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or things present or things to come, all are yours. And how is this so? And you are Christ. And Christ is God's. Now you know how parents, they spend a lot of money for their children. Our father spent a lot for you and me. He gave his only begotten son for you and me. He spent the blood of the son of God. And through him, therefore, all of our providences have been sanctified for our good. Our providences come through the Lord Jesus. Whether they come in the form of blessings or whether they come in the form of afflictions, they're meant for our good. They have all been sanctified by the blood of our Savior. This is the theme of the hymn that we sang just prior to this sermon, Sovereign Ruler of the Skies. In the 18th century, few names were more honored among the particular Baptists than that of John Ryland, the author of this hymn. And he's about 14 years of age. He experienced a great spiritual change. He made a profession of faith and he was baptized. And after a time, with the approval of the church in Northampton, England, he began to help his father in the ministry. And in 1781, he was ordained and appointed as a co-pastor with his father. And then two years later, he had the privilege of baptizing William Carey in the River Nen, the very same river in which he himself had been baptized. At a time, Ryland was one of the initial organizers of the very first Baptist Missionary Society. And that society sent out William Carey as a missionary to India. 
And then some 10 years later, in 1793, he became the president of the Baptist College in Bristol and the pastor of Broadmead Chapel, and he held these posts until his death. Rowling composed 99 hymns, and the best known of these hymns, it's in our hymnal, it's the hymn, O Lord, I would delight in thee. But I want you to think about the very first stanza of the hymn that we sang a little bit ago, Sovereign Ruler of the Skies. And this stresses what we're considering here, that the providence of God is especially centered on the saints. Sovereign ruler of the skies, ever gracious, ever wise, all my times are in thy hand, all events at thy command. And this special care, it's manifested in, in several particulars. For one thing, the providence of God attended and attends every circumstance of our conversion. All the while, you remember that Onesimus was running from his master, unknown to him. The hand of God was on Onesimus, and he brought him right into the, into the company of the Apostle Paul. And it was through the Apostle Paul that he heard the gospel. And even so, in the second stanza of this hymn, we sing, His decree who formed the earth, fixed by first and second birth, parent, native place and time, all appointed were by him. And so our conversion, this is part of what God pays special attention to. And furthermore, providence, it was also at work fashioning our very natures and our circumstances, preparing us for our particular calling in life or our particular calling in the church. Not everybody is called to be an eye in the body of Christ. Some are called to have a foot or, or a hand. They're more practically oriented. And it's, it's useless envying the calling of other people. God is going to be glorified through what he gave you and what he prepared you to do. The humble captive slave girl, she was so faithful in her calling that she ended up appearing in a king's court and became the instrument of becoming of, of bringing the saving message of God's nation of Israel to Naaman the Syrian, the captain of the Syrian army. If she'd been anxious, you see, to be a queen or running around trying to run away, she would have missed out on that. Her calling at that point was a, a slave calling. Whatever we think of slavery, that's what her calling was at that point. And even so, reflecting on the way that God has formed us and fashioned us for his service, we sing in the third stanza of this great hymn, He that formed me in the womb, he shall guide me to the tomb. All my times shall ever be ordered by his wise decree. And then, as we think of these particulars for God's saints, thirdly, his providence includes also the supply of our physical needs. Now, at times, God has fed his people miraculously, just as he did by raining manna down from heaven on the Israelites. And he, he, he did this, remember, when Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes. But usually, God provides in ordinary ways. He provides through the labor of our hands. But sometimes God provides in a remarkable way. He feeds Elisha by ravens. I remember my father talking about a poor man in India in a time of famine. He prayed for his next meal. He had nothing to eat. And lo and behold, a bird of prey flew over his chimney and dropped a big hunk of meat down that chimney. 
He had his dinner. The Puritan Thomas Watson says, if God will give his people a kingdom when they die, he will not deny them daily bread while they live. There's a story told about a martyr that was condemned to die. And the judge said to that martyr, you're going to be in prison. There will be no allowance of food for you. What will your God do for you? How will he feed you? He mocked him. Why, if he wills it, the man answered, he can feed me from your table. And until the day of his burning, the wife of that wicked judge had sympathy on this martyr and fed him from the persecutor's table. Now, whatever the case, with you and me, at the end of our lives, we will be able to testify with Jacob. We will be able to speak of the God that fed me all my life long. His name is Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. He provides our physical needs. And in times of economic uncertainty, as we are going through, this is a wonderful thing to, to, to rest in. And furthermore, fourthly, the providence of God also ensures our safety. Proverbs 34 and verse 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around all those who fear him. You remember how when the Syrian army surrounded Elisha and his servant, his servant exclaimed, Alas, master, what will we do? So the Lord answered, so Elisha answered, Don't fear, for those who are with us are more than those that are with them. And Elisha then prayed, Lord, open his eyes that he might see. And then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And in answer to Elisha's prayer, the enemies that surrounded them, they were smitten with blindness. He has guaranteed our safety. As long as God wants us to continue living on earth to serve him, we will be safe. Now, maybe none of us ever until recent weeks ever imagined that we would come to a day and time in our lives when we would be thinking about safety issues every day when we wake up. And against what, what are we more helpless than, than an invisible virus? How do we protect ourselves? And here, dear people, let's remember that as long as God has worked for us, we're surrounded by an invisible wall of protection. Even if you contract the virus, if your day has not yet come to, to enter glory, if your labors are not over, it will not prevail over you. And so we sing with great faith in the sixth stanza of this wonderful hymn, Plagues and deaths around me fly, till he bids, I cannot die. Not a shaft can hit, till God of love sees fit. One more thing, the providence of God, it also strengthens us in our trials. And indeed, our trials are part of God's providential dealings with us. The Puritan Thomas Watson, he observes that the providences of God are like checker work. They're intermingled. In the life to come, there will be no more mixture. In hell, there will be nothing but bitter. In heaven, nothing but sweet. But in this life, the providence of God are mixed. There's something of the sweet in them, something of the bitter. Providences are just like Israel's pillar of cloud, dark on one side and light on the other. And so it was with Joseph. He's there in prison. Everything seems to have gone against him. He's sold as a slave. He's accused by his master's wife falsely. And there he is in prison, wondering if he's ever going to get out. 
And yet there's a phrase that really strikes me when I read through the story of Joseph. Again and again it comes out, but the Lord was with him. There in the prison, God, there's the light there. The cloud was there, but the light was also there. The Lord was with him. And so the fourth stanza of this wonderful hymn, this mixture is depicted. Times of sickness, times of health, times of poverty and wealth, times of trial and of grief, times of triumph and relief. Well, as we conclude our thoughts this morning, as we think about the fact that the providence of God extends to all things, the entire universe, the universe of spiritual beings, extends to all men, especially the saints. What do we learn from this? Well, I trust that you've already learned some things, thought about some things as we've been going through. A very practical subject, I think. For those of you that don't know the Lord Jesus, you should get from this that you, you, you need to be afraid. God made you, and he made all that you have. He's given you gifts, and he's given you those gifts for using for his glory. And you're like a renter in God's land. And you're not giving the rent of the glory. You're not serving him. He's got control of your life in his hands. And as long as you rebel against this God that made you, my dear friend, you will not prevail. You won't succeed in that rebellion. He will succeed. He controls everything. What if you were in the presence? What if we lived in a, in a, in a country ruled by a king? Would you rebel against that king right in the presence of that king? And do you rebel against the, the God of heaven right in his presence? My friend, you need to fear. And you need out of fear to be driven to flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. For in him and him alone, in his shed blood, you can have forgiveness and you can have a changed heart. But for those of you that are his children, the truth of God's providence, it's a source of wonderful comfort. What a comfort it is, for one thing, that to know that he hears our prayers. He responds providentially, and there's an interaction that takes place between our petitions and his providence. And so David loved to use the address when he prayed to God, my king and my God, my king, you're my sovereign. You remember how John Newton put it, thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. And what a comfort it is to know that our sovereign God is in charge in the midst of all of our afflictions. Ultimately, it's not man, it's not the devil, it's a loving Heavenly Father, dear people, that is behind your afflictions, your trials. And sometimes it might seem that they have no end, but the sovereign of the universe, he says to the ways, thus far you shall go, and no further. And he says to your trials, thus far they will go, and no further. I've set a boundary to them. And this truth, it's a comfort. Those of you that care for patients in a hospital, you're exposed. Those of you that got to go into the office and you're exposed. And you're wondering about your wife when you come back home and your children. You wonder if maybe inadvertently you passed somebody that day that was a carrier of the disease. Dear people, know this, that your God is in control of these viruses. He will protect you as long as he wants you here on earth. And if he takes you, he'll take care of your wife. He is a God that cares for his people. And this should give us great courage. 
It should make us to not be nervous and afraid and always fretful and always worrying. I love this statement of Stonewall Jackson, a true believer. Even though some Yankees might not have liked it very well, he was a, God, a man that loved God. And he said, my religious beliefs teach me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. He knew that as bullets were whizzing by him, not one would strike until God had made sure that it struck. And what a comfort it is also in, in these days where just as mass confusion, where there's hatred, where there's strife, where there's hard opinions and governors and the president quarreling with each other and all the rest. What a comfort it is that at this time where it seems there's just chaos to remember that Shanachrib can come up to the kingdom of Jerusalem and he can come there with his thousands. He can come with his opposition, but not one arrow will strike if God prohibits them from coming. You remember how God chased him off with the avenging angel. Martin Luther said, I had utterly despaired had not Christ been head of the church. He is still the head. He is still the governor of the church and of his people. But as we conclude our service today, we want to sing once again the hymn that I've commented on, the hymn that will be sung and played, and the words will appear before you again in order that hopefully now that you've practiced it once, they will mean something to you as we now sing together, Sovereign Ruler of the Skies. But before we do that, let's pray for the help and the grace of God. Heavenly Father, we bless you and praise you that you are our God, you are our Sovereign. We praise you that we can entrust our souls into your care, that these viruses, they are all superintended by you. The economy, the loss of jobs, the strife in the nation, what's going to happen politically, the evil that people plot. Lord, all these things are under your control. And we plead with you, Lord, that you would help us to trust you in these days. We pray that your church would be sanctified, that as judgment has come upon this land, as chastening has come upon us, that we would be made tender and repent of our sins, that we would run back to you and cease rebelling against you and against your will. Have mercy upon us, you, our Heavenly Father, who care for your people. We pray these things in the precious name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you.